This is Come and See from St. Andrew's Anglican Church for February 10th, 2013. The Gospel is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 9, verses 28 through 43. The message is by Father Ron Baird. Today we come to the last Sunday after the Feast of the Epiphany, as Tuesday is Shrove Tuesday, and Wednesday is the beginning of the great 40 days of Lent, where we walk the journey to uh, Golgotha, and prepare to die with our Lord Jesus Christ, as surely as we uh, allow Him in His body to take our sins and our human nature with Himself into the very depths of darkness, only to be raised on the third day. But before we go, it's appropriate that we go from one mountain to another, because Calvary is a mountain um, that sits just outside. It's really a hill, but they call hills mountains. It's kind of like eastern Kentucky is. Um, but um, it's, um, I can say that because I'm from Kentucky. But, um, but he, the Golgotha sits on top of a mount in Jerusalem. And here he is in the north country where he's on top of a mountain. Where he has taken his uh, three closest friends, James, John, Peter, and he's gone up to the mountaintop to pray. Now, we will hear echoes of this again later in the story as we get to Holy Week. Remember when else he took Peter, James, and John to pray? To the Garden of Gethsemane. does the same thing. And it says that they were very sleepy. Does this seem like a recurring problem? <laughs> that every time Jesus takes these guys off to, to pray, they, they want to go to sleep. And it's kind of like church. You know what I mean? <laughs> But here they are, they're very sleepy. And then all of a sudden, they're wide awake because something remarkable happens. They suddenly see Jesus standing there with Moses and Elijah on either side of him. And it's not just that Jesus is standing there, it's that his garments and his face shine, they gleam, it says. Now, do you know, do you remember anybody else in Scripture whose face gleamed? Moses. Moses, when he had gone to talk with God, had had the experience where he said he wanted to see God. And so he was up on the mountaintop, and, and God says, if I show you my face, you will surely die. But I tell you what I'll do. I'll pass by and I'll show you my backside. Just goes to show, goes to show God has a sense of humor. He mooned Moses. Um, and as he's going by, Moses' face is turned into this gleaming, bright, white light. And when he comes down off of the mountaintop, the people are terrified. Because the glory of God, even his backside, now shines forth from Moses' face. And it says, so whenever he would talk to the people, he had to wear a veil. Which is, as near as we can tell, is the earliest instance of anybody wearing a burqa. And it was not a woman, it was a man. So if anybody tells you that's the way it's supposed to be, it's supposed to be the men wearing them, apparently. And so they're afraid and said Moses only took this veil off when he would go into the tent of meeting to talk with God, to converse with God. And Peter, being Peter, who had just, you know, eight days before confessed Jesus as the Messiah, the son of the living God, is, and he's already forgotten about the get behind me Satan part. Apparently Jesus was in a bad mood for a moment and had gotten over it. And so he immediately does what Peter does best, which is open his mouth. And what comes out of his mouth is this. 
gee, Jesus, it's really lucky for you that we're here. Now, the scripture translates, it's good that we are here. Now, you can almost see Jesus go, what? <laughs> the glory of God has just been revealed to you, Peter. And you're telling me how lucky I am that you have managed to be here for this moment. Wow. <laughs> Words escape me. And if you notice, Jesus never speaks in any of this passage until the next day. But, and so he's standing there, and, he, and then Peter goes on, realizing that that didn't sound exactly the way he wanted it to come out, probably. So he says, let us build three booths for you. Now, a booth is a tabernacle, um, and it's where the glory of God is kept. For Moses, it was that tent of meeting. Where, where you know, Moses would go into the tent of meeting to meet with God, where the Ten Commandments were kept in the Ark of the Covenant. And so it was always shrouded in, in a tabernacle, usually a tent in those days. And so that's what the Feast of Booths is really all about. And so Peter, you know, recovers quickly and says, let us build three booths for you. You know, one for you and one for Mo Moses and one for Elijah. And then suddenly Moses and Elijah are gone. And before Peter can get another word out of his mouth, it says they were overshadowed by a cloud. Now, can you think of another time something in Scripture was overshadowed by something? Mary, in the Annunciation, the angel of the Lord overshadowed her and she conceived a son who would be called Jesus and who would be the Son of God, the Savior of the world. And the glory of God, which had been revealed in the, the glow coming off of Jesus, is now revealed in the cloud, the Shekinah glory of God. You know, that glory that is beyond holy, beyond sacred to us. And we know that we have seen elsewhere where God dwells in a cloud. Remember when, he led, when Moses was leading the, the um, Israelites out of Egypt? That the pillar of fire led them by day and a, um, uh, by night and a pillar of uh, cloud by day. God is in the cloud. I think it was also a way of God saying to Peter, shut up. Because <laughs> Peter has nothing to say after that. Because God has a point to make here. And that point is, this is my son. My beloved chosen one. Listen to him. And that's not like shut up to you. Listen to him. That's the message. Listen to him. And it's still the message for us today. And we still have the same problems that they had back then. Because while we don't build booze or tents, you know, for tabernacles, we all have our booze of sort, don't we? You know, those church traditions or customs that we hold as sacred and reverential and the way things are supposed to be. And it's not that there's anything wrong with that. I mean, because the Jews had been doing tents and the Feast of Booze all the time. They're great reminders and great teachers. But when they become the important thing and not the listen to him, we turn them into idols. There's a story told of a, a young man who finished his internship and got his first cure as a, a priest. And so he goes off to this uh, rural town, and, and as he goes in, the first Sunday he arrives, he gets ready to walk in during the procession. And as he comes in, he notices that the entire congregation is seated on this side of, of the church. 
He thought, that seems odd. But he went on in and you know, did his thing. Then when the thing came time for the sermon and everybody stood up for the reading of the gospel and they sang the last two verses, of, as they were singing the last two verses of the gospel hymn, before he started preaching, everybody moved over to this side of the church. And he thought, that was really weird. I wonder why they did that. But he didn't want to ask because he's new and young and, you know, he, he just graduated from seminary smart. So, obviously, he should know why this tradition exists, but he doesn't have a clue. So, he goes back, studies all of his books, and everything. he can't find anything about moving from one side of the church to the other. I mean, so he doesn't know what's going on. So, this goes on, and he thinks, well, maybe it was just a fluke. Comes in the next Sunday, same thing. Everybody's sitting on this side of the church. Sermon comes, everybody moves to that side of the church. So, he thinks, I don't I guess I'm just going to admit I don't know what. So, he goes and he asks somebody, why is it that... Everybody sits on this side of the church to the sermon, and then they move to that side of the church. And they said, well, that is the way that it has always been. It, it's very That's how we show reverence for the gospel and the word of God being preached. He goes, well, why do you do it that way? Well, we're not exactly sure, but our parents did it that way, and their parents did it that way. I mean, it, it goes way back. We, you know, we, we're not, you know, you ought to know. Don't you know? <laughs> No, I don't know. So this went on for like four or five years. And he, he had grown to accept that that was what it was, but he still thought it was really strange that this would happen. And he worried, because what happens if the church ever fills up? Because they wouldn't all fit on one side. What would he do then? So he said, isn't there somebody who would understand, you know, where this came from and what this is about? And somebody said, you know, Emily might. Now, Emily was the oldest member of the church. She was 98 years old, and she really wasn't able to get out anymore, so she was always um, in her home. And he would take her communion once a month. So he determined that he was going to go ask Emily the next time he visited her why they do this tradition. So he gets there, and they have communion, and they're talking. He says, Miss Emily, I have to ask you a very important question. Do you have any idea why it is that everybody sits on this side of the church and then they move over to the other side of the church of the sermon? She goes, oh, pastor, I don't know. I mean, we've been doing that gee, I don't ever remember us not doing that. I mean, my mother and father taught me about it. He said, so you don't have any idea what the rationale behind it was? She goes, well, I can tell you what my grandmother told me. And he says, okay, well, what did your grandmother tell you? She said, well, when they first built the church, the heat was a potbelly stove, and it sat over there. And when everybody came in, they were all cold, so they all sat there. But sitting next to that pot-bellied stove, by the time the sermon came around, they were all getting hot, so they all got up and moved over to the other side. And the people kept doing it, even after they removed the pot-belly stove. Sometimes we're like that in the church, aren't we? We get so uptight about the ritual and the way things are done that we forget the purpose of the ritual and the way things are done. We forget to listen to Him. And when we forget to listen to Him, then everything that we do becomes meaningless. And we just do it because that's the way it's done. Because we no longer do it to help us listen. You know, and, and people do that differently. Well, the next day, it says Jesus, after he'd come down from the mountain, goes into town. And a man comes running up to him and his son has been possessed by a demon that throws him into convulsions. And he's frothing at the mouth and, I mean, all these horrible things are going on. And he said, you know, I asked your disciples if they could get rid of this demon and they tried, but they couldn't. And then Jesus has a reaction that's interesting. 
Oh, you perverse and foolish generation. How long are you going to have me with you? Now, at first, that seems like, gee, what's that all about if they couldn't get rid of him? But what parent hasn't ever said to their kid, you know, I'm not going to be alive forever, and someday you're going to have to figure out how to do these things. Now, Jesus has already told them where he's going and what's going to happen. Why is it that they weren't able to cast out the demon? They not yet? No, no, no. Otherwise, why would he call them perverse? <laughs> they were in doubt. They forgot to listen to him. I mean, if you wanted to do something, who would know how to do it? Jesus. So Peter, and probably, and John, are, hey, we're the big three. You know, we can handle this. And they tried to do it under their own power. And guess what happened? <clears throat> Didn't work. Because they forgot to do it, forgot that they really can't do it under their own power. They can only do it under his. And it's only when they listen to him that they're able to perform these healings. It's interesting. You see later in Acts, uh, John and Peter are walking through the gate in Jerusalem and they see a man blind and he's begging. And, and, and they, he said, or he's lame rather, he's begging. And they said, he wants money. And they said, well, we don't have any money, but we can give you what we do have and we can restore your health so that you can walk. And so they give that to him and he jumps up and he walks. Now, why were they able to do that? Because they listened, which is what in the name of Christ is supposed to mean. Not that we end our prayer with through Jesus Christ, our Lord, because that can become an idol too. And it's that listening that is paramount to faith. Because otherwise, how would they have known whether or not they were going to be able to heal this man? And the same is true for you and me today. How would we know what we can do when we try to do it on our own? And most times, we don't even try. But we don't try because we don't listen. Because we become too self-absorbed. We become too busy. We become too jaded, maybe. We become too immersed in our own traditions and culture that we've forgotten why they were there and we're just like lemmings moving from one side of the church to the other doing our own thing i can remember once when i was in seminary i went to st paul's k street anybody know st paul's k street washington it's like one of the high high highest high church that exists i mean they invented high church i think but and it was on the feast of the epiphany which was interesting and so this is a big feast they had four processional crosses they had like four aisles going to the big church. And so as they're walking up, every time they walk up and they would walk up and they would come back and they would go back up a different aisle and go back. And, so, and every time that a cross would go by anywhere along the plane that you were, you were supposed to do this. And now you can imagine what happens with four crosses because they're not in sync. And so you're doing. So I felt like a dippy bird. <laughs> Now, the reason why I went there is because when I was at seminary, I went to Virginia Seminary, which was considered uh, the Protestant Episcopal Seminary in the Diocese of Virginia. Um, and so and they emphasized Protestant with great fervor. <laughs> um, Catholic did not enter into the doors 
processional crosses were not allowed in the chapel. They didn't have candles on the altar until 1948. And the only reason why they put them there then was because the bishop, who was the chairman of the board of trustees, wife died and he gave them a memory of her and they didn't know how to get out of it. (laughs) And they were Eucharistic candles, so they lit them only for the daily office. Figures, right? And so, I mean, this was like snake belly low Virginia church. And so when I get to, to seminary, I'm being told by these Virginians, oh, you're high church. And I said, what's that? <laughs> and, and they were saying, oh, that's where you cross yourself and do all that. That's what high church is. So I went to St. Paul's K Street thing. Oh, I, I never knew I'm high church. I went there and I went, I'm not a dippy bird. I don't care what anybody says. So I must not be high church. I don't know what I am, but I'm sure not high church. And all too often, we forget why we do what we do. And we become so encapsulated in the booth that we have built that we've forgotten to worship and adore and serve the Lord that we built the booth for to begin with. If we are going to journey through life as disciples of Jesus Christ, and more than disciples, as apostles of Jesus Christ, sent forth into the world to proclaim the good news, then the only way that we will have the power to do that is when we listen to Him under His Word and His guidance. Now, it shouldn't be that much of a shock to us because, after all, the world came into being because the Word spoke, and it was. So why is it that we doubt that He can do anything? You know, a lot of people don't believe that Jesus even speaks anymore. I remember once sitting, talking with a friend of mine who was a priest. Austin was there, actually, witnessing me. And he said, well, what do you, who do you think God is? I said, well, God, you know, talks to me. And, and I talked to him. He goes, you really believe that God talks to you? And I said, well, yeah. He said, well, yeah, we don't worship the same kind of God. I can tell right now. Remember that? I was like, Okay. <laughs> And I thought, how sad. But the more I thought about it, the more do you realize that we are the only religion in the world who believes that their God can talk to them. Every other religion in the world, their prophets, their great leaders, all gave you know wonderful words to people and ways to live and uh, precepts and premises to attain holiness or nirvana or whatever they want to call it. But nobody ever has that simple command, listen to him. Just listen to him. And so if we want to be able to to do the things that Jesus would want us to do, the very first thing that we have to do is listen. Listen to what it is that he has to say. Because otherwise we're doing it under our own power. And it won't be any better than any other religion or any other function in the world. It will be worldly. That's really what the journey of Lent ultimately is about as we come down from the mountaintop that is the mountain of transfiguration. It's to walk into the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil because we know that he is with us and that his rod and his staff, they will comfort us. We know that we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever so we don't have to build one. It's time for us to examine our lives to see where are those things that we have left undone that have prevented us from hearing him. Where are those things that we have done that have stopped us from hearing Him? And how do we remove the clutter and allow the voice of Jesus, the voice of the Good Shepherd, to come in clearly? That's the journey. Because when we do things in Jesus' name, because we heard Him and we listened to Him, 
miraculous things happen. They abound. When we do things in the name of Jesus because we call ourselves Christian, and that's really all that it means, the church becomes any, like any other institution, opinionated, grumpy, and relatively sleepy. You see that in the church today, don't you, in the world? It's dying out. It's dying out for that simple reason. We forgot that basic command. Listen to him. Are you willing to make that journey? Are you willing to, to struggle, to clear away anything that would prevent you from hearing Jesus? And are you willing to follow him to your own death, bearing your own cross, knowing that you will dwell in the house of the Lord forever? Because that is the journey of Lent. That is the journey of hope. That is the journey of crucifixion. But most importantly, it's the journey of resurrection and life eternal. Amen. You were just listening to Come and See. Come and See is a production of St. Andrew's Anglican Church in Lewis Center, Ohio. St. Andrew